Chapter Five, Part One of A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve by William Wood. Chapter Five, Part One. Eighteen Thirteen: The Beaver Dams, Lake Erie, and Chautauqua. The remaining operations of 1812 are of quite minor importance. No more than two are worthy of being mentioned between the greater events before and after them. Both were abortive attempts at invasion, one across the Upper Niagara, the other across the frontier south of Montreal. After the Battle of Queenston Heights, Schaeff succeeded Brock in command of the British, and Smythe succeeded Van Ressler in command of the Americans. Schaeff was a harsh martinet and a third-rate commander. Smythe, a notorious braggart, was no commander at all. He did, however, succeed in getting Schaeff to conclude an armistice that fully equaled Provost's in its disregard of British interests. After making the most of it for a month, he ended it on November 19th, and began manoeuvring round his headquarters at Black Rock, near Buffalo. After another eight days, he decided to attack the British posts at Red House and Frenchman's Creek, which were respectively two and a half and five miles from Fort Erie. The whole British line of the Upper Niagara, from Fort Erie to Chippewa, a distance of seventeen miles by road along the river, was under the command of an excellent young officer, Colonel Bishop, who had between five and six hundred men to hold his seven posts. Fort Erie had the largest garrison, only a hundred and thirty men. Some forty men of the forty-ninth, and two small guns, were stationed at Red House, while the light company of the forty-first guarded the bridge over Frenchman's Creek. About two o'clock in the morning of the 28th, one party of Americans pulled across to the ferry a mile below Fort Erie, and then, shearing off after being fired at by the Canadian militia on guard, made for Red House a mile and a half lower down. There they landed at three, and fought a most confused and confusing action in the dark. Friend and foe became mixed up together, but the result was a success for the Americans. Meanwhile, the other party landed near Frenchman's Creek, reached the bridge, damaged it a little, and had a fight with the 41st, who could not drive the invaders back till reinforcements arrived. At daylight, the men from Chippewa marched into action. Indians began to appear, and the whole situation was re-established. The victorious British lost nearly a hundred, which was more than a quarter of those engaged. The beaten Americans lost more, but being in superior numbers, they could the better afford it. Smythe was greatly disconcerted but he held a boat review on his own side of the river, and sent over a summons to Bishop, demanding the immediate surrender of Fort Erie to spare the effusion of blood. Bishop rejected the summons, but there was no effusion of blood in consequence. Smythe planned, talked, and maneuvered for two days more, and then tried to make his real effort on the 1st of December. By the time it was light enough for the British to observe him, he had fifteen hundred men in boats, who all wanted to go back, and three thousand on shore, who all refused to go forward, he then held a council of war, which advised him to wait for a better chance. This closed the campaign with what, according to Porter, one of his own generals, was a scene of confusion difficult to describe. About four thousand men without order or restraint discharging their muskets in every direction. Next day the Committee of Patriotic Citizens undertook to rebuke Smythe, but he retorted, not without reason, that the affair at Queenston is a caution against relying on crowds who go to the banks of the Niagara to look at a battle as on a theatrical exhibition. The other abortive attempt at invasion was made by the advance guard of the commander-in-chief's own army. 
Dearborn had soon found out that his disorderly masses at Greenbush were quite unfit to take the field. But four months after the declaration of war, a small detachment, thrown forward from his new headquarters at Plattsburgh on Lake Champlain, did manage to reach St. Regis, where the frontier first meets the St. Lawrence, near the upper end of Lake St. Francis, sixty miles southwest of Montreal. Here the Americans killed Lieutenant Rotot and a sergeant, and took the little post, which was held by a few voyageurs. Exactly a month later, on November 23rd, these Americans were themselves defeated and driven back again. Three days earlier than this, a much stronger force of Americans had crossed the frontier at Odeltown, just north of which there was a British blockhouse beside the river La Colve, a muddy little western tributary of the Richelieu, 47 miles due south of Montreal. The Americans fired into each other in the dark, and afterwards retired before the British reinforcements. Dearborn then put his army into winter quarters at Plattsburgh, thus ending his much-heralded campaign against Montreal before it had well begun. The American government was much disappointed at the failure of its efforts to make war without armies, but it found a convenient scapegoat in Hull, who was far less to blame than his superiors in the cabinet. These politicians had been wrong in every important particular. Wrong about the attitude of the Canadians. Wrong about the whole plan of campaign. Wrong in separating Hull from Dearborn. Wrong in not getting men of war afloat on the lakes. Wrong, above all, in trusting to untrained and undisciplined levies. To complete their mortification, the ridiculous gunboats in which they had so firmly believed had done nothing but divert useful resources into useless channels. While on the other hand, the frigates, which they had proposed to lay up altogether so as to save themselves from the ruinous folly of a navy, had already won a brilliant series of duels out at sea. There were some searchings of heart at Washington when all these military and naval misjudgments stood revealed. Eustace soon followed Hull into enforced retirement and great plans were made for the campaign of 1813, which was designed to wipe out the disgrace of its predecessor, and to effect the conquest of Canada for good and all. John Armstrong, the new war secretary, and William Henry Harrison, the new general in the West, were great improvements on Eustace and Hull, but even now the American commanders could not decide on a single decisive attack supported by subsidiary operations elsewhere. Montreal remained their prime objective, but they only struck at it last of all. Michilimackinac kept their enemy in touch with the West, but they left it completely alone. The general advance ought to have been secured by winning the command of the lakes, and by the seizure of suitable positions across the line. But they let the first blows come from the Canadian side, and they still left Lake Champlain to shift for itself. Their plan was undoubtedly better than that of 1812, but it was still all parts, and no whole. The various events were so complicated by the overlapping of time and place all along the line that we must begin by taking a bird's-eye view of them, in territorial sequence, starting from the farthest inland flank, and working eastward to the sea. Everything west of Detroit may be left out altogether, because operations did not recommence in that quarter until the campaign of the following year. In January the British struck successfully at Frenchtown, more than thirty miles south of Detroit. They struck unsuccessfully still further south at Fort Meigs in May and at Fort Stevenson in August, after which they had to remain on the defensive, all over the Lake Erie region, till their flotilla was annihilated at Put-in Bay in September, and their army was annihilated at Moravian Town on the Thames in October. In the Lake Ontario region the situation was reversed. Here the British began badly and ended well. 
they surrendered York in April, and Fort George at the mouth of the Niagara in May. They were also repulsed in a grossly mismanaged attack on Sackett's Harbor, two days after their defeat at Fort George. The opposing flotillas, meanwhile, fought several maneuvering actions of an indecisive kind, neither daring to risk battle and possible annihilation. But as the season advanced, the British regained their hold on the Niagara Peninsula by defeating the Americans at Stony Creek and the Beaver Dams in June, and by clearing both sides of the Niagara River in December. On the upper St. Lawrence they took Ogdensburg in February. They were also completely successful in their defense of Montreal. In June they took the American gunboats at Ile aux Noix on the Richelieu. In July they raided Lake Champlain, while in October and November they defeated the two divisions of the invading army at Chautauqua and Chrysler's Farm. The British news from sea also improved as the year wore on. The American frigate victories began to stop. The Shannon beat the Chesapeake and the shadow of the great blockade began to fall on the coast of the democratic south. The operations of 1813 are more easily understood if taken in this purely territorial way, but in following the progress of the war we must take them chronologically. No attempt can be made here to describe the movements on either side in any detail. An outline must suffice. Two points, however, need special emphasis, as they are both markedly characteristic of the war in general, and of this campaign in particular. First, the combined effect of the American victories of Lake Erie and the Thames affords a perfect example of the inseparable connection between the water and the land. Secondly, the British victories at the Beaver Dams and Chautauqua are striking examples of the interracial connections among the forces that defended Canada so well. The Indians did all the real fighting at the Beaver Dams. The French Canadians fought practically alone at Chautauqua. The first move of the invaders in the West was designed to recover Detroit and cut off Mackinac. Harrison, victorious over the Indians at Tippecanoe in 1811, was now expected to strike terror into them once more, both by his reputation and by the size of his forces. In midwinter he had one wing of his army on the Sandusky, under his own command, and the other on the Maumee, under Winchester, a rather commonplace general. At Frenchtown stood a little British post defended by fifty Canadians and a hundred Indians. Winchester moved north to drive these men away from American soil. But Proctor crossed the Detroit from Amherstburg on the ice, and defeated Winchester's thousand whites with his own five hundred whites and five hundred Indians at dawn on January 22nd, making Winchester a prisoner. Proctor was unable to control the Indians who ran wild. They hated the Westerners who made up Winchester's force, as the men who had deprived them of their lands and they now wreaked their vengeance on them for some time before they could be again brought within the bounds of civilized warfare. After the battle, Proctor retired to Amherstburg. Harrison began to build Fort Meigs on the Maumee, and a pause of three months followed all over the western scene. But winter warfare was also going on elsewhere. A month after Proctor's success, Prevost, when passing through Prescott on the upper St. Lawrence, reluctantly gave Colonel Macdonnell of Glengarry provisional leave to attack Ogdensburg, from which the Americans were forwarding supplies to Sackett's Harbour, sending out raiding parties, and threatening the British line of communication to the west. No sooner was Prevost clear of Prescott than Macdonnell led his four hundred regulars and one hundred militia over the ice against the American fort. His direct assault failed. But when he had carried the village at the point of the bayonet, the garrison ran— Macdonnell then destroyed the fort, the barracks, and four vessels. He also took seventy prisoners, eleven guns, and a large supply of stores. 
With the spring came new movements in the west. On May 9th, Proctor broke camp and retired from an unsuccessful siege of Fort Meigs, now Toledo, at the southwestern corner of Lake Erie. He had started this siege a fortnight earlier with a thousand whites and a thousand Indians under Tecumseh, and at first had seemed likely to succeed. But after the first encounter the Indians began to leave, while most of the militia had soon to be sent home to their farms to prevent the risk of starvation. Thus Proctor presently found himself with only five hundred effectives in the face of a much superior and constantly increasing enemy. In the summer he returned to the attack, this time against the American position on the lower Sandusky, nearly thirty miles east of Fort Meigs. There, on August 2nd, he tried to take Fort Stevenson, but his light guns could make no breach, and he lost a hundred men in the assault. Meanwhile, Dearborn, having first moved up from Plattsburgh to Sackett's Harbor, had attacked York on April 27th, with the help of the new American flotilla on Lake Ontario. This flotilla was under the personal orders of Commodore Chauncey, an excellent officer, who in the previous September had been promoted from superintendent of the New York Navy Yard to commander-in-chief on the lakes. As Chauncey's forte was building an organization, he found full scope for his peculiar talents at Sackett's Harbor. He was also a good leader at sea, and thus a formidable enemy for the British forces at York, where the third-rate Chafe was now in charge, and where Provost had paved the way for a British defeat by allowing the establishment of an exposed navy yard, instead of keeping all construction safe in Kingston. Chafe began his mistakes by neglecting to mount some of his guns before Dearborn and Chauncey arrived, though he knew these American commanders might come at any moment, and though he also knew how important it was to save a new British vessel that was building at York, because the command of the lake might well depend upon her. He then made another mistake by standing to fight in an untenable position against overwhelming odds. He finally retreated with all the effective regulars left, less than two hundred, burning the ship and yard as he passed, and leaving behind three hundred militia to make their own terms with the enemy. He met the light company of the Eighth on its way up from Kingston and turned it back. With this retreat, he left the front for good, and became a commandant of bases, a position often occupied by men whose failures are not bad enough for courts-martial, and whose saving qualities are not good enough for any more appointments in the field. The Americans lost over two hundred men by an explosion in a British battery at York, just as Chafe was marching off. Forty British had also been blown up in one of the forts a little while before. Chafe appears to have been a slack inspector of powder magazines. But the Americans, who naturally suspected other things than slack inspection, thought a mine had been sprung on them after the fight was over. They consequently swore revenge, burnt the Parliament buildings, looted several private houses, and carried off books from the public library, as well as plate from the church. Chauncey, much to his credit, afterwards sent back all the books and plate he could recover. Exactly a month later, on May 27th, Chauncey and Dearborn appeared off Fort George, after a run back to Sackett's Harbour in the meantime. Vincent, Chafe's successor in charge of Upper Canada, had only a thousand regulars and four hundred militia there. Dearborn had more than four times as many men, and Perry, soon to become famous on Lake Erie, managed the naval part of landing them. The American men-of-war brought the long, low, flat ground of Mississauga Point under an irresistible crossfire, while three thousand troops were landing on the beach below the covering bluffs. No support could be given to the opposing British force by the fire of Fort George, as the village of Newark intervened. 
So Vincent had to fight it out in the open. On being threatened with annihilation, he retired towards Burlington, withdrawing the garrison of Fort George, and sending orders for all the other troops on the Niagara to follow by the shortest line. He had lost a third of the whole force defending the Niagara frontier, both sides of which were now possessed by the Americans. But by nightfall on May 29th he was standing at bay, with his remaining 1,600 men, in an excellent strategical position on the heights, halfway between York and Fort George, in touch with Dundas Street, the main road running east and west, and beside Burlington Bay, where he hoped to meet the British flotilla commanded by Yeo. Captain Sir James Lucas Yeo was an energetic and capable young naval officer of thirty, whom the Admiralty had sent out with a few seamen to take command on the lakes under Prevost's orders. He had been only seventeen days at Kingston when he sailed out with Prevost on May 27th, to take advantage of Chauncey's absence at the western end of the lake. Arrived before Sackett's Harbour, the attack was planned for the 29th. The landing force of 750 men was put in charge of Baines, the adjutant general, a man only too well fitted to do the dirty work of the general's staff under a weak commander-in-chief like Prevost. All went wrong at Sackett's Harbour. Prevost was present but not in command. Baines landed at the wrong place. Nevertheless, the British regulars scattered the American militiamen, pressed back the American regulars, set fire to the barracks, and halted in front of the fort. The Americans, thinking the day was lost, set fire to their stores and to Chauncey's new ships. Then Baines and Prevost suddenly decided to retreat. Baines explained to Prevost, and Prevost explained in a covering dispatch to the British government, that the fleet could not cooperate, that the fort could not be taken, and that the landing party was not strong enough. But if this was true, why did they make an attack at all? And if it was not true, why did they draw back when success seemed to be assured? Meanwhile, Chauncey, after helping to take Fort George, had started back for Sackett's Harbour, and Dearborn, left without the fleet, had moved on slowly and disjointedly, in rear of Vincent, with whom he did not regain touch for a week. On June 5th the Americans camped at Stony Creek, five miles from the site of Hamilton. The steep, zigzagging bank of the creek, which formed their front, was about twenty feet high. Their right rested on a mile-wide swamp, which ran down to Lake Ontario. Their left touched the heights, which ran from Burlington to Queenston. They were also in superior numbers, and ought to have been quite secure. But they thought so much more of pursuit than of defence, that they were completely taken by surprise when 704 firelocks under Colonel Harvey suddenly attacked them just after midnight. Harvey, chief staff officer to Vincent, was a first-rate leader for such daring work as this, and his men were all well disciplined. But the whole enterprise might have failed for all that. Some of the men opened fire too soon, and the nearest Americans began to stand to their arms. But while Harvey ran along reforming the line, Major Plenderleith, with some of Brock's old regiment, the 49th, charged straight into the American center, took the guns there, and caused so much confusion that Harvey's following charge carried all before it. Next morning, June 6th, the Americans began a retreat which was hastened by Yeo's arrival on their lakeward flank, by the Indians on the heights, and by Vincent's reinforcements in their rear. Not till they reached the shelter of Fort George did they attempt to make a stand. The two armies now faced each other astride of the lakeshore road and the heights. The British left advanced post, between ten and twelve-mile creeks, was under Major de Heron of the 104th, 
a regiment which, in the preceding winter, had marched on snowshoes through the woods all the way from the middle of New Brunswick to Quebec. The corresponding British post inland, near the Beaver Dams, was under Lieutenant Fitzgibbon of the 49th, a cool, quick-witted, and adventurous Irishman, who had risen from the ranks by his own good qualities and Brock's recommendation. Between him and the Americans at Queenston and St. David's was a picked force of Indian scouts, with a son of the great chief Joseph Brandt. These Indians never gave the Americans a minute's rest. They were up at all hours, pressing round the flanks, sniping the sentries, worrying the outposts, and keeping four times their own numbers on the perpetual alert. What exasperated the Americans even more was the wonderfully elusive way in which the Indians would strike their blow, and then be lost to sight and sound the very next moment, if indeed they ever were seen at all. Finally, this endless skirmish with an invisible foe became so harassing that the Americans sent out a flying column of six hundred picked men under Colonel Borsler on June 24th to break up Fitzgibbon's post at the Beaver Dams and drive the Indians out of the intervening bush altogether. But the American commanders had not succeeded in hiding their preparations from the vigilant eyes of the Indian scouts or from the equally attentive ears of Laura Secord, the wife of an ardent United Empire loyalist, James Secord, who was still disabled by the wounds he had received when fighting under Brock's command at Queenston Heights. Early in the morning of the 23rd, while Laura Secord was going out to milk the cows, she overheard some Americans talking about the surprise in store for Fitzgibbon next day. Without giving the slightest sign, she quietly drove the cattle in behind the nearest fence, hid her milk pail, and started to thread her perilous way through twenty miles of bewildering bypaths to the beaver dams. Keeping off the beaten tracks and always in the shadow of the full-leaved trees, she stole along through the American lines, crossed the no-man's land between the two desperate enemies, and managed to get inside the ever-shifting fringe of Indian scouts without being seen by friend or foe. The heat was intense, and the whole forest steamed with it after the tropical rain. But she held her course without a pause, over the swollen streams on fallen tree-trunks, through the dense underbrush, and in and out of the mazes of the forest, where a bullet might come from either side without a moment's warning. As she neared the end of her journey, a savage yell told her she was at last discovered by the Indians. She and they were on the same side, but she had hard work to persuade them that she only wished to warn Fitzgibbon. Then came what, to a lesser patriot, would have been a crowning disappointment, for when, half dead with fatigue, she told him her story, she found he had already heard it from the scouts. But just because this forestalment was no real disappointment to her, it makes her the Anglo-Canadian heroine, whose fame for bravery in war is worthiest of being remembered, with that of her French-Canadian sister, Madeleine de Verchères. Footnote. For Madeleine de Verchères, see The Fighting Governor in this series. End of chapter 5, part 1.